New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Each of us is capable of creating small or big changes in our lives and in the world. These actions can have a ripple effect if we take time to focus on the needs and wants of our community and by coming together as a coalition of support in mutual aid, mutual respect, and mutual understanding. However, this doesn't mean that we need to overwhelm ourselves with the full responsibility of changing the world. Our guest today, Shelley Tagalski, will share with us some useful and effective suggestions in how to connect our actions and words with the outer world from an inner source of self-care. Shelley Tagalski is founder of the Pandemic of Love movement and is a self-care activist, community organizer, and mindfulness teacher. She's the author of Sit Down and Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. Join us for the next hour as we explore what it means to be an activist in the world from a heart-based life with our guest, Shelley Tagalski. I'm speaking with Shelley from her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Shelley, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. First of all, we think of a pandemic as a negative thing, but you have really created a positive pandemic called Pandemic of Love. So how did this first happen for you? Tell us about it and, and what, what it stands for. Sure. So Pandemic of Love, in its simplest form, the way of explaining it, is a grassroots, volunteer-led, mutual aid organization that's now global in over 20 countries. And it's essentially a nonprofit disruptor. It's a direct aid giving organization where we connect one human to another and they directly transact. So a person in need with a person who can fulfill that need, sometimes from their community, sometimes from a community further away. And in order to transact, they have to have a conversation, a connection. And so you can imagine how beautiful um, you know, things can unfold from those connections between two 
strangers and how they can learn that really in this life, there are no strangers. You know, we're all really uh, part of this one close-knit family that's that's, uh, woven from the same, you know, in the same tapestry. So Pandemic of Love actually started as, I will say, a quote-unquote an accident, Um, although we could say there are no accidents, right? I was sitting around my kitchen table really in distress over people within my own community in South Florida at the time, which is where I was living, and I was thinking about um, the impending closures that were about to happen in Florida. We were one of the last states to actually basically, you know, have social distancing in place and and, and all the government. So you're talking about the pandemic of the COVID pandemic. Correct. Pandemic in March of 2020, when things started to shut down in New York City, we started to, you know, get reports of the first wave of of, of deaths that were happening due to the um, due to this virus. Um, and so as I was sitting and worrying about, you know, if you take yourself back to where we, where you were, whoever the listener is here, right, where where were you in March of 2020? when we really didn't know anything about the virus, there wasn't really PPE available uh, where we could, you know, wear face masks when going out. Um, and and we couldn't even really test for the virus at that point. So there were a lot of unknowns. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of hysteria. And uh, I was simply worried about really my family, of course, but also about people in my community who I knew were already struggling to make ends meet. They were already worried about how they were going to fill their fridge, you know, every single week. They were relying on free lunch and breakfast at schools to feed their children for 10 meals a week. So to suddenly not have, you know, a job or not have the, the access to those free meals was really catastrophic. And so channeling, you know, and, and kind of sitting with and being self-aware of the emotions that I was feeling, I asked myself two uh, really important questions. And those questions were, you know, the first was, what can I do about this emotion or these emotions that I'm identifying at this point? Angst, despair, fear, and so on. And the second question was, and how do I come from a place of love? And so in thinking about tangible ways that I could assist on a small way in my community, I decided to create two very simple forms on Google Forms, give help and get help. And literally the forms, the original forms only had like five or six questions each. And the the current forms only have probably like 10 or 12 questions, you know, so they're not very complex. And I posted those two links up on my Instagram page and went to bed and woke up the next morning and checked to see how many people had filled it out for my community. And I was shocked to see that hundreds of people, not just from my community, but from all over the world, people from Portugal and Italy and Canada and the Philippines filled out the forms and that this form had gone around the world and come back. And so to answer your original question in terms of the meaning of pandemic and really how the the, the, the name Pandemic of Love even came about was that I thought to myself, you know, this is proof that not only diseases go viral, but that love is a virus. Love is infectious, that love and kindness and hope and all of these really positive things in the world can also be a pandemic if we will it, if we want it. 
I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. And I'd love for you to tell a story about a connection, a particular connection, because I think it just points out something so wonderful. You describe in the book that there was a a woman, I think, from New York City, Eileen, uh, and she was a self-described hippie and, and, and activist and uh, very progressive and liberal. And she was paired up with a woman, a uh, pro-MAGA woman, conservative, single mom from Alabama. And yeah. can you describe that relationship? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I love that story also because of the timing of it all, right? So I first um, heard from Eileen uh, in the early summer of 2020. So this was just a few months after Pandemic of Love had started. She was somebody who was um, who would come down to South Florida frequently. So she had come to our my community meditation gathering on Sunday mornings that when when it was being held in person. And and so she knew me that way. And so she followed me on socials and she filled out the the form to give help. And said, you know, I don't really care if the person's in New York, they could be anywhere. And so our volunteers paired her up with this woman, Christine, a single mother in Mobile, Alabama, who, um, you know, was very much benefiting from public assistance programs, but was also incredibly conservative and um, very proud of her Southern heritage very proud of her Southern lineage, which included, you know, uh, having like a, a sticker of a Confederate flag on the side of her trailer where she lived with her kids. And when Eileen was paired up with her, she was really upset. Uh, she actually sent a really mean email to my volunteers, which eventually got forwarded to me. And I was like, wait a minute, I know this woman get her number or give her my number and I need to talk to her. So we connected, Eileen and I, over the phone. She was in New York at the time and she really let me have it. She gave me a piece of her mind and was like, you know, and you can imagine the very thick sort of New York accent, you know, coming at you. And she said, you know, I can't believe that you would, you guys would match me up with um, a person who wants to harm me and who's voting for everything that I stand against. And, you know, I listened to her uh, gripe and I listened to her complain and bemoan this connection. And, um, and then I paused when she was done and I, and I asked for permission to kind of retort or to speak. And I said, you know, Eileen, you come to uh, the beach meditations sometimes and I lead you through uh, a meta practice, right? Loving kindness practice where you're offering well wishes, may you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be free from suffering to people known to you, people unknown to you, acquaintances, and also people you have difficulty with. And this is an opportunity for you to practice, not just on the cushion, so to speak, but actually take what you're doing into the real world. And I want you to consider that if you don't transact with Christine, that she will feel that you're confirming everything she possibly may think about a Yankee snowflake liberal from New York, a place that she's probably never visited in her life, right? And she said, you know, I I hear what you're saying. I'm going to think about it and I will uh, let you know. And I I didn't hear from her until 
about a month before the November 2020 elections. So now take yourself back to the 2020 elections. Think about October, just the polarization, the amount of stress. You know, now we're dealing with COVID and we're dealing with this really contentious election. There's all this polarization. There's all this vitriol that's happening in the world. And um, and I get this beautiful email from Eileen telling me that not only has she been transacting with Christine on a weekly basis, sending her gift cards to Walmart, but that she now considers her to be a friend and that they actually have like bridged this divide and that something shifted in her to recognize that she's been building walls her entire life rather than building bridges, you know, and sort of creating this, um, this, this othering uh, and leaning into this conditioning that we get, whether it's from our parents or from society or from the media and, and actually just feeding the beast. Right. Um, And so it's, it's such a beautiful testament to what happens when we're willing to be in proximity with somebody and put ourselves into um, a space of difficulty, you know, Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for describing that wonderful story and happening. Uh, And it's such a wonderful instruction for all of us. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Shelly Tagalski, and she is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up. And if you want to know about her work, you can go to her website, ShellyTagalski.com. And she spells her last name T-Y- G-I-E-L-S-K-I, ShellyTagalski.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shelley Tagowski, and she's the author of Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. And in the story that you just relayed to us, I was struck by how when you talked to the woman from New York, mm-hmm. you, you knew her a bit, and you spoke in a language that she could hear. Because you knew her, you knew her value. I I was just impressed in how you didn't make a wrong or anything, but you just really reminded her of who she was and who you knew her to be. 
And you said uh, that she would come down to these beach meditations. So (laughs) what are the beach meditations? Because this is going back to the beginning of it all, I believe. Uh, So so say what those were or or continue to be maybe. Yeah, well, so unfortunately, the beach meditations um, ceased to, uh, to, to gather since uh, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in March of 2020. I think the last gathering we had was actually like at the first week of March of 2020. But I, um, I have been a meditator for over 20 years, right? So for two decades, I learned to meditate in graduate school. Um, thanks to my core teacher, still Sharon Salzberg. And it was always a personal practice for me. But as I was also sort of living this double life, right? I was I was a meditator, but also, you know, so very spiritual, but also uh, rising up the ranks in the corporate world over two decades. And I, I like to say, like, in spite of myself uh, succeeding, like, actually being rewarded for doing a job that I wasn't really very passionate about, but just kept moving up the ranks and eventually made it to become the head of a, of a company with 2,400 employees. You know, so the stress was really great, but on Sunday mornings, wherever I could find that clearing in the dense forest before I would hit the, the rat race again on Monday mornings, I would go to the beach, which was very close to my house. And I could go there and be in peace in the morning and meditate for 30 minutes, watching the waves crashing ashore and sort of reset and set my intention for the week. And the words that kept always popping up for me over and over again were community, connection, you know, and I was really longing for, uh, for just those things, for, for the ability to sit with others, because the quality of sitting with other people is very different than when you sit alone in meditation, right? Neither is better or wrong or, you know, but, but really it's just different. And so I decided uh, in November of 2015 to uh, put on, uh, on my Facebook page that I am going the following Sunday to the beach and this is the address and this is the time I'm usually there. And if you would like to meditate with me, or if you want to learn how to meditate, um, I will help guide you through a meditation. And, and by all means, did not consider myself to be a meditation teacher, even though I was a practitioner for, for 20 years. And um, to my surprise, 12 people showed up to the beach on that Sunday morning in November of 2015. And we had such a wonderful time connecting and uplifting each other that we decided to meet again. And when we met again, those friends brought friends who then brought friends who then brought friends. And by May of 2016, we had um, filled up really the beach from the shorelines to the dunes. uh, And we were actually shut down (laughs) by the the local police station because they couldn't get emergency vehicles through. I think we had like a thousand people. And I had a sound system at that point. And it was just really incredible to see um, how, you know, when you're willing to show up and when you're willing to sort of put yourself out there, um, what can what can manifest and what can happen. So that was the beach meditation. And I eventually wound up actually that summer of 2016, quitting my job, leaving my career of 20 years 
uh, leaving corporate America behind because I recognized that the universe really was like throwing me out of the nest and telling me that there was something else for me to do, something else for me to accomplish. So you mentioned showing up. I mean, that's a big deal in, in your whole effective way of being in the world is to show up. Mm-hmm. And to you emphasize showing up for ourselves. And yeah. I know that that you connect that every action we do in the world uh, really it comes from our own self-care. Mm-hmm. And we're better activists because we care for ourselves. So I'd love to talk about what does self-care have to do with showing up and being active in the world? Yeah, well, I mean, we can we can use a metaphor that's often used but so appropriate, right? You can't you can't fill somebody's cup when your cup is empty. And you 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 are told when you're on an airplane and they give you kind of the instructions before takeoff, like always put your oxygen mask on first before you administer and help other people. So we have to help ourselves. We have to be able to um, be as present as possible, show up as whole as possible, you know, in that moment in time, right? Um, in order to be able to really create shifts and transformations in the world. And so I always say that it's really about connecting the inner work to the outer world. We have to create a line between those two. And the inner work, you can't skip over it. It's very important because you can deplete yourself, right? You, it's, it's a matter of self-preservation uh, for many communities, even today, right? Uh, the term self-care oftentimes has been, especially in recent times, has been hijacked, I think, by the industrial wellness complex and people trying to sell you green juices and spin classes <laughs> and, you know, all, all sorts of, of things to help you thrive where really for many people, the pursuit of self-care, even to this in this moment in, in history, is a matter of survival. It's not a matter of self-indulgence. It's not, it's a matter of self-preservation. And it's a matter of being able to really take care of your circle of influence, of your community, so that we're all whole. You know, in your book, I was so pleased to see that you mentioned self-care in the context of marginalized people. And you mentioned this, that like it's this is not frivolous for these people. Yeah. This is this is something very, very important. I, I please speak to that. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, people forget that self-care really has its roots in the civil rights era. It has its roots in the feminist movement because really self-care was, it was not an option. It was not a luxury. It was not a bubble bath. It was really about survival. It was about communities and, um, you know, genders that did not have access to things that we may take for granted today you know, that we have access to, to, to basic medical care, right? To health care. And so um, it's really important to make sure that we kind of look backwards and that we know the history of where self-care came from and, and understand that it's not what we think it may be today. Yes, exactly. In your book, there's a part I found personally very effective. And when, when we're talking about self-care or 
some habit that we want to change that's maybe self-destructive. So we might want to change it. And you talk about not to ask ourselves how to do it, but the first question we need to ask ourselves is why yeah. we want to do it. And, right. and then you divide this up. I actually tried this, Shelly. I tried this and uh, because there's something that I wanted to do. And you have three columns, like the activity that you want to follow through with and the obstacle to that activity and then the removal of the obstacle. And you're constantly asking yourself why. And, and so for me, it was exercise. Yeah. <laughs> find exercise <laughs> so boring. Same. And I just want to give you an example of how I use it because I thought, because you also write about how not to stray too far from your already activities, you know, yeah. dump, taking too far a leap. So I thought, okay, I have a treadmill in my apartment, but I don't use it. Okay. But one thing that I do every morning after I fix my coffee, I go back to bed, I turn on my TV and I check in with the news. And that's my ritual. And I thought, oh, with Shelly's, what she has this activity that she has portioned out for me in these columns, if I take my iPad to my treadmill, I can still watch my news, my half hour news, and I'm doing my walk. And I just found that just delightful. So I just want to thank you for that. And oh, that's so great. Any comment, that. please, that you have on, on using that technique? Yeah, I think, um, you know, reminding ourselves of the why, right, of the the intention and not necessarily the goal, right? We, we are conditioned uh, in the Western world, especially to um, center our life around goals. And not that goals are bad or that having 72 things on your to-do list, Lord knows I've got those 72 things on my to-do list on a daily basis, you know, but, but the gratification is not necessarily in just checking those off. It's like, what am I working towards, right? When we want to be fulfilled or really um, feel like we're creating new habits. And so I think ultimately what we tend to do is kind of have these big lofty New Year's resolution type goals, which very rarely, if ever, stick, right? Uh, we usually just give those up very quickly. And I think if we can um, have some grace for ourselves and like really um, understand that we can achieve things incrementally. Again, if we show up, even if it's just a little bit at a time, one baby step at a time, you know, when you look back a month later, you're like, wow, I really accomplished all of that. You know, think back to this. There was, um, uh, like a, a viral campaign on, on social media with, uh, the one push-up challenge. And you would start with one push-up a day. And then the next day you do two push-ups and the next day you do three push-ups. And by like day 30, you're doing 30 push-ups. But if you would have started with the goal of doing 30 push-ups, you probably wouldn't have gotten there. Right. Um, and so I think that's really the mindset is how do we chunk things out into small bits and how do we look at these rituals that we already have in our lives and just create, um, you know, create additional uh, pathways to expand those rituals versus change those rituals. You know, I, it, that just reminds me and takes me to um, circles of influence and how 
um, we all have agency for these circles of influence that that we can do. We, uh, I know that that you going back into your background of um, agency, you within that chapter you call the meaning of agency. You talk about your mother and your grandmother how they accepted their roles of being women and and wives and mothers and and just acting out in the way that it was handed down to them. Sure. So I'd like to talk about agency in just one moment, but I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Shelley Tagowski and she is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up How Radical Self-Care can change the world. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shelley Tagowski, and she is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up. And we're talking about agency. And also, we all have the opportunity to be a circle of influence. We have a circle of influence. Yeah. We have. And so talk about that and what, what our agency is and what that means to you. Well, so agency means that people recognize how their choices born from our God-given, if you will, free will, right, will affect other people. And it means that we have the ability to be reflective, that we have the ability to have awareness and be introspective about our actions. Everybody has agency, but not everybody has a sense of agency. So there's a very clear distinction there, right? And certainly I talk about how in my book, I always thought, well, in order to actually have agency, I thought I had to be fully healed or have certain pedigree or have certain skills. And, you know, that in order to show up in the world for other people or actually do something about things that were causing me great strife or angst or people in my community that I would need to um, really, you know, achieve or cross a certain finish line. And I think a lot of that for me, and I talk about this in the book, stemmed from uh, issues with self-worth and self-esteem, which I identified over many years of very deep shadow work, many discussions and discovery with, with family members as well, even like constellation therapy, right? Being able to understand the intergenerational trauma that was really handed down to me over generations. So even, you know, born to more privilege and having more opportunities, of course, than my mother and my grandmother and her grandmother before her, who were refugees, by the way, I learned that um, that a lot of, of their trauma really was passed down to me mm-hmm. and uh, epigenetically, but also, you know, through nurture, of course. And, um, and so through, you know, a lot of very deep shadow work, I was able to recognize that actually part of the healing is, is leaning into that sense of agency 
adopting it, understanding it, and rising up for other people in your circles of influence. And so really who we are is that we're the we're the pebble, if you will, that's being thrown on a daily basis, willingly. We're thrusting ourselves into this proverbial pond and we're creating these ripple effects. And I call them, you know, ripples of influence. So ROI, if you will, start to reframe your your thinking of uh, return on investment is actually a ripple of influence. And so we're willingly, with a sense of agency, thrusting ourselves into the pond, creating these ripples, some that will have the effects that are you know, uh, known to us and some that are going to be so far reaching that we'll never know how we affected the world through a kind act, through um, the ability to help somebody and make sure that people just within our own circle, people that we can touch, as the Buddhist proverb uh, so aptly says, you know, tend to the area of the garden that you can reach. Right. So if we all just tended to the area of the garden that we could reach without worrying about the neighbor's grass or the neighbor's, you know, flower beds and just made sure that our flower bed was thriving and that our yard looked fine, then I think the world would be such a better place. And it just may be our own immediate family. Shelly, you have a wonderful story um, in your book, and I think it was your personal experience where you were paying for... um, Mm-hmm. a parking ticket and you yeah. went in in person and do you recall that story yeah yeah oh sure. i'd love for you to tell it because sure. you know i mean we think about these big acts and changing the world but yeah you know this is like a small act but it was so moving and it we don't know the effect the ultimate effect that it might have had yeah, you know, I I I was um still very much a single mom and you know, working on uh one salary, working really hard to try to make things meet and keep things together and um I was paying a parking ticket that I got um actually running late from uh work to pick up my son from school and um and I was standing in this municipal you know, uh, office waiting and rope and stanchion. There's, there was like a long line and there was a woman who could, um, was just really having a, a, a difficult time with the woman at the counter and, um, you know, had, had a small child with her that really reminded me of my, um, of, of, of my relationship with my son. And, um, and I decided, cause I, I had, I had one, like two tickets to, um, you know, for free ice cream or something like that. And she was just having a hard time even like paying this, this parking ticket herself at that point and just felt so defeated by the entire process that I actually took, you know, when she left, I, I followed her out and, you know, lost my place in line, followed her out and called after her. And I, um, you know, just essentially told her, like, I'm really sorry that you're having such a difficult time. Um, and I was, bearing witness to the to what you were going through and i happened to have these these two tickets or two vouchers for free ice cream and um maybe you and your son would like to have you know have an have have some free ice cream and just have like a nice time where you're not stressed out in this stressful situation and she was so incredibly touched um by that gesture to her seen and felt experience right and to her frustration but also to do something kind for her, 
which is incredible. And I think that we oftentimes forget that these small gestures actually are contagious. You know, people pay things forward. And there, and again, we go back to where we started at the beginning of this conversation, which is that love is viral. Kindness is viral. Kindness is contagious. Like if you do something kind for uh, for somebody, they'll do something kind for somebody else. Uh, and, and they will have more hope in humanity, right? And, and perhaps show up differently themselves. This gesture, even though it might have been a, counted as a small gesture, it was a gesture of solidarity with her, a gesture yeah. of understanding. Yeah. And that's the whole the whole point. You you hear stories about people. I, I know um my husband's son committed suicide and we so mm-hmm. we got very involved a little bit in, in the whole movement of people mm-hmm. who have had loved ones suffer in that way. And and there were stories that came up about somebody maybe in a cab you know, being driven to a place where they're going to commit suicide. And there was just some some word of kindness that the cab driver said to Mm. a person that changed the trajectory of their life and they they didn't do it. So we never know the effect we have when we're just stopped for a moment and just are are a little bit kind to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Justine, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm really sorry for oh. that, for your loss and for that pain and suffering. Um, it's horrible. And mm-hmm. uh, absolutely, I think that you're right in terms of, you know, you never know how far reaching we all have stories, right? We all have stories of a teacher that was that 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 said something kind to us in, in when we were in elementary school or, or made us believe in ourselves or make us think that we were smart or, you know, gave us, gave us some sort of hope or, and, and I think that what it points to is the fact that really there are no small acts of kindness, right? Because we may think it's small. We may be diminishing the importance of it because it's not important to us, but it's all relative because the one word that you could say that you think is like a nothing, it's a small thing could actually save somebody's life, right? Potentially, or give them the confidence to apply for college or believe that they could be a writer or, you know, just really change that trajectory. So, so really, I think it, it, it leans back to the fact that there, there really are no small acts of kindness. You know, speaking of class, I'm reminded of the work that you did, I think that it began with your son when he was very young, maybe yeah. seven, eight years old. Yeah. Uh, and this is about the music class at the uh-huh. um, the Canal Point Elementary School in yeah. South Florida. Uh, tell us, tell us a bit about how how that worked and how what changed in that class. Well, my son, you know, has always been uh, really into music. He's now 20 years old and a sophomore in college. But when he was uh, five, he started drumming. And when he was 10, believe it or not, in fifth grade, he formed a rock band with <laughs> with another student who played the guitar. So they were a rock band of two of two kids. Mm-hmm. And um, and and for his birthday, you know, I said, what do you want for your birthday? What kind of party do you want? You know, and he said, I want to play music for my friends. 
or we I want our band to play. So we we wound up, um, you know, the other parent, the other students' parents, and and myself, kind of creating this makeshift, you know, rock concert. And we wound up inviting um, the entire um, the entire grade, which was about 120 kids. And in lieu of presents, because both of our kids, you know, have great privilege. And in this day and age, nobody like waits for their birthday or Christmas to get presents anymore. You know, we live in this like world of instant gratification. And so, um, you know, my son said, I, I would like to uh, give the opportunity to kids who don't have access to music. You know, obviously he didn't say it in those words. He was only 10, but but essentially knowing that he had visited a Title I school that I um, I had taken sabbatical when I was in corporate America for a year. And I volunteer taught at a Title I school in a rough area of Fort Lauderdale. And he used to come to the classroom and visit and notice that they didn't have a smart board and that they didn't have all of the luxuries uh, and opportunities that he had in his school, you know, that was very well funded. And so... Um, so we decided basically to uh, donate the money to VH1 Saves the Music Foundation. And the caveat was that I said, you have to connect us to a school because uh, I don't want the kids to just write a check. I want them to have like a connection. Again, going back to the, the how pandemic of love works, right? It's about the human connection because I think that's where cr- we create these ripples and these shifts. And so um, we we connected to the school, Canal Point Elementary in Pahokee, Florida, which is right off of Lake Okeechobee. It's in Palm Beach County, which you would think is one of the richest counties in the country. Yes, as you go east towards the ocean, but the further west you go, the more rural and the more it is uh, closer to the sugarcane factories. And it's it's incredibly, incredibly impoverished. There's not a lot of opportunities to get out of Pahokee unless you play football or unless you join a gang and you're, you know, selling drugs, to be quite honest. And so they connected us to this um, incredible individual named Alan Goindu, who we're still in touch with today. This is a decade later. And he um, is like, if you've ever seen the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus, he's like the Mr. Holland of Pahokee. And he um, created really something out of nothing, really was able to create this symphony. And um, and it's a testament again to how you could show up. I, I, I want you to really be able to complete that story in just one moment. Uh, I just need to sure. remind our listeners, I'm here with Shelley Tagowski, and she is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up. I'm Justine Willis-Doms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Shelley Tagowski, and we're, we were talking about um, this music teacher in this um, rural school, and uh, where is it now, and how were you able to help, and who joined you to help? Well, you know, so there's this saying with Pahokee, and I'm sure that it can apply to many places that uh, that 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 invoke this description of Pahokee, but that, you know, you, you can leave Pahokee physically, but it never leaves you physically, right? Because once you see how people in this country, especially, right, are living, it's very hard to just go back and, and sleep in your comfortable bed and have all of your luxuries and not think about those children that you meet in these types of schools. And my son especially was really affected by this because on the one hand, you know, music is a universal language. So he was able to sit in with the band and play with them and connect with these kids and play football with them, et cetera. And, you know, kids are kids. Um, but he noticed that their shoes were tattered and that the soles of their shoes were some of them. Actually, one one of the girls had a uh, front of her shoes cut off because her her uh, toes could poke through. And my son noticed that and it really bothered him. And and so, you know, you you can't just go back to normal life and resume normal life. I think that once we show up, it really becomes a habit. We have to lean into it. And we recognize that, you know, we, again, at this epicenter of this circle of influence, have the opportunity, even if we financially cannot do something, we have the power to gather people, to amplify, to send a message, to call a friend who can call a friend who can call a friend, right? It doesn't just have to work for Mary Kay <laughs> or Tupperware, <laughs> depending on your age, but it can work for, you know, for all sorts of things, for doing good in the world. And so today where uh, Pahokee is, is they're an award-winning program. They have kids that now started out when we first went there and were in the strings program or the brass program or in the symphony. And now they have full scholarships and full rides to college and they get to go to band camp in the summers and they get to see that there is life outside of Pahokee. And that music is really just another way for them to achieve a lot of success and to have an entree to so many opportunities that they probably never even dreamed of. This is such a great demonstration of something that you believe in and experience in that true democracy is mm. practice on a local level. Yes that uh, I'd love for you to talk about how changes are made in movements that are built in these small increments on the local level in these personal interactions. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's really exemplified as well in my book, which is written in three parts, right? The first part is the inner journey, the me, because we've got to take care of that me that we talk about. And then the next kind of level is the journey of we, which is, uh, are the journey of our kind of immediate circle of influence, our family, the people we really see on a daily basis, maybe the people we work with, but people we really can touch on a daily basis. And then once they're okay and there's equity and they have enough, they're good, right? They're at a good place. Then we can join with other communities that are also in a good place and create these like movements and create this journey of us, which is the third section of the book. And, and this journey of us is really a collective 
um, place where we can all sort of, you know, join uh, join hands or, or, or link up our arms together, uh, community next to community, family with family that's doing well, and and create m- massive ripples and changes in the world that that are that are far reaching. Um, and and I think that oftentimes, you know, when there's especially daunting problems in the world, which there always are, right? We we see war and we see hunger and homelessness and 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 famine and on and on. I mean, there's no shortage of problems in this world. And we think, well, that's too big of a problem. I can't do anything about that. I can't solve racism. Well, maybe you can't solve racism, but can you solve it within your family unit? Can you solve it within your child's school? Can you think about what kind of books your local library might have access to? And is that a problem that's tangible and solvable? And I think that if we all kind of started to pare down and and really look at things in a very, uh, what we would consider to be a small level, once we start there, we can really, um, you know, be surprised, I think, with how far-reaching those yes. effects are. Yes. I'm, I'm reminded of something that I... I'm hearing repeated over and over now. It's it's kind of like a little meme that's showing up. And I've read it in your book and I've I've in other interviews that I've done, and that's that all flourishing is mutual. Yeah. And this is demonstrated in nature all the time. And I know yeah. that you subscribe to the idea that um Independence is a myth. Yes, <laughs> it does not exist. So, <laughs> not. so that that we're in always in a constant web of mutuality uh, together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think of an example like in the Amazon. There are these vines that that start to weave together, and they start, you know, slowly, but they start weaving together and weaving together, and until they are strong enough, and they get mutually strong together they can reach the canopy mm-hmm. uh that where they they see the sunlight because they're going for sunlight but right. they can't do it as an individual vine but together they they reach the sunlight uh as an example in nature so um independence is a myth and i i think it's peter uh Kropotkin, uh, a Russian yeah. philosopher who who said, hey, it's not about survival of the fittest. It's about collaboration. It's really a better way to go. So with all that said, I really turn it over to you because I know yeah. you feel passionate about this. Yeah, well, really, I mean, it's, it's where I talk in the book about mutual aid, which is what uh, Pandemic of Love is a mutual aid organization, right? And it's about this notion that every human being on this planet, regardless of their socioeconomic status, I don't care if they're a billionaire, I don't care if they're a mega billionaire or they're shooting themselves up into space, they all have something they need. And every single person in this world has something they can give and offer, Right. And so it's not just about exchange of financial, you know, money or, or or things that are tangible, but people have time poverty, for example. And so the idea is that if we can identify what we are, can offer the world and we can identify people who need exactly what it is that we can offer, then there's this beautiful coexistence that can emerge. And I think, you know, again, when we look to Western society and capitalistic structures, 
we lean on the, this notion, this Darwin, Darwinian philosophy, which we are like, oh, it's Darwin, survival of the fittest. That's exactly what people think of immediately when they think of, of Darwin. And actually, that's just like one little sliver that he wrote about, right? Because he also talked about how ecosystems thrive when they cooperate and that they actually don't just survive because they're the most fit, but then they thrive when they actually are mutually, you know, coexisting with um, with other species. We uh, we've done interviews in the past with uh, David Loy, who has mm-hmm. looked into all the works of Darwin, and he talks about how Darwin talked about love, like mm, so many yeah. more times yeah. than he ever talked about survival of the fittest. Correct. And I think what happened was really that Darwinian theory got hijacked by, you know, by by social uh, biologists, by philosophers who wanted to, you know, economists who who wanted to point to, look, this is the law, law and order. This is how nature works, you know, when in reality, it's really not how nature works. And, and we've been going against exactly how nature works. And we would like to think that we're so independent and that we, you know, made it as far as we did by, you know, um, you know, getting there on our own. And the truth is, is that not anything that we do during the day, whether it's eating a meal or sleeping in a bed or living in a house was done on our own. We are interdependent creatures. And every single thing that we've ever done in our life, from being born to actually death, <laughs> is facilitated in some way or the other, you know, by by a human being um, and by 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 generations of people that had to exist in order for us to even be able to exist and subsist. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I lean into is really this notion of MWE, which is M-W-E. And that, that's a trademarked uh, a, um, word that was created by Dr. Dan Siegel. And Dr. Dan Siegel says it's like the me and the we come together and we become not interdependent, but really intradependent when we realize that we are actually not just individual species that are dependent on each other, but interdependent, that we are species within a same ecosystem that work together. Exactly. And I know that you have a wonderful question that you can put out to, we can put out into the world at any moment is, how can I support you? And yeah. that's, that's the question uh, that can be on our lips at any time. And yeah just constantly walking around with that question. Oh, Shelly, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. It's been my pleasure to have you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Shelly Tagalski, and she is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care can change the world. And she's the founder of the Pandemic of Love. So if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, ShellyTagalski.com. And she spells her last name T-Y-G-I-E-L-S-K-I, ShellyTagalski.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,757. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.